try to get people to recognize themselves that maybe there's a problem there and maybe my life could be better if I did something about it. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a September 16th update of DKP Band Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series in the second part of Dr. Allwater's interview with Dr. Kathleen Brady. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are describe the impact of COVID-19 on people with substance use disorders and discuss the changes that have been implemented to address challenges imposed by the pandemic. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. This will be the second part of his interview with Dr. Kathleen Brady, Director at the South Carolina Clinical and Translational Science Institute and Distinguished University Professor, as well as Vice President for Research at the Medical University of South Carolina. She will be discussing issues faced in addiction medicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Brady, thank you so much for your times today. Yeah, uh, thank you, Faith, and uh, thank you, Kathleen, for joining us. We had been discussing about some of the trends where uh, substance uh, use disorders are intersecting with mental health and uh, also the COVID-19 pandemic making things more challenging than ever. I think uh, especially for some of our listeners that may only occasionally help uh, treat patients in this arena and so on. I think it's often useful to sort of understand what resources now granted many of them are probably quite uh, regionally or state specific there, but it's such a, a population that's very hard to help as it were on so many fronts and really need large institutional resources and processes. Uh, but can you give some examples maybe with the pandemic of some options either for medical addiction treatment, for example, or other interventions that can help reach out? Because as I understand it, a number of the traditional underpinnings and so on where venues have been helpful, of course, have uh, been off to the side because of social distancing and, and really the strain on medical services. Yes. For example, um, residential treatment programs, the 30-day residential treatment programs are essentially closed down now. But every state has what we call a single state agency, and that single state agency gets money from the federal government, from SAMHSA, to provide services throughout the state. Now, those services vary tremendously from state to state, 
And in addition to the public treatment option, there's been many, many, many private treatment settings that have cropped up um, over the last 10 to 20 years. In particular, I think one of the only bright sides of the opioid epidemic is it's really reintroduced physicians and medical treatment in, you know, writ large back into addictions treatment because we do know that medication-assisted treatment with either buprenorphine, naltrexone, or methadone is one of the most effective ways that you can treat opioid use disorder. And that requires a physician or um, nurse practitioner or PA supervised by a physician. Initially, when methadone is highly restricted and only handed out after someone gets a physical exam on site in a very structured treatment setting, and usually for the first six months or so, someone has to come in every single day and take their dose in front of a provider. Now, you can imagine in the day of a global pandemic, that doesn't work very well. So the federal government actually regulates the use of methadone much more than any of the medications physicians are used to prescribing. So uh, they actually have encouraged take-home doses, encouraged parts of the physical exam to be done uh, via telehealth, and really broadened what, what people could do. Um, in the case of buprenorphine, that's a drug that's always had a little more um, leeway around prescribing. It can be prescribed in an office-based practice and the person goes to a pharmacy to pick it up just like they do every other drug. But every physician only has a limited number of patients that they can treat. And even in states that approve telehealth, and that's not every state, the first visit had to be done in person. So everybody agreed first visit has to be done in person. So those restrictions have been loosened as well. Now you can do your first visit actually via telehealth and you can prescribe um, via telehealth for buprenorphine. Those are two big changes that have really made these medications much more accessible to people during this pandemic. You know, many states have tried to get more uh, physicians and clinicians involved in substance use disorders. Uh, however, you know, they're limited to maybe doing two hours of continuing medical education and so on. And you brought up Suboxone and, and, and those kind of interventions, yet you need to take training courses. And um, get, for people that may not be as familiar, what's the commitment to, to actually doing this? And, um, you know, is it something that really is so specialized it should only be done by a a few people or uh, give us some perspective on, on what many of us might be able to do to help. No, I, I think almost anybody who works in the field believes truly that substance use disorder treatment recognition and treatment should be mainstreamed as much as possible. If you think about um, what are the cost drivers in almost all chronic illness, psychiatric illnesses play a huge role in making every chronic illness worse. And substance use disorders are probably one of the, the worst. If you think about smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, um, all of those things contribute tremendously to morbidity and mortality, no matter what the, the primary cause of the illness is. So I think almost every professional would say it, it'd be great if more doctors would screen 
for substance use disorders, at least know how to do a brief intervention and then know how to refer people. You know, know what the referral places are and be ready to do that if they feel like that the substance. I would agree that people who are severely dependent probably do need more specialized treatment. And that's probably something not every physician is interested in or should do. Um, but to be able to recognize substance use mm-hmm. patients and refer them appropriately is probably the least we should expect. One of the things that's happened in terms of this continuing education that you were talking about, I think that's in part to help physicians recognize substance use, but a lot of it is just around safe prescribing of opioids. because That was really one of the things that got us into big trouble with the uh, opioid overdose epidemic. So um, both uh, continuing education for physicians, as well as now what we have these PDMPs, the prescription drug monitoring program. So every state has one. And if you, when, when a, a person receives an opioid, it goes into a central database and any other person prescribing for that person can, can find out in that state if they've received an opioid. And then, you know, certainly much more enforcement of regulations around prescribing. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of those have been very helpful. I know when I don't prescribe many narcotics, but going through that routine and, and, and checking uh, a database has been very helpful. Uh, but for people that may not be as familiar or they don't have access to an institutional social worker, so on. Let's say you've done screening, you've asked uh, if someone uh, might have substance use issues. In any given state, what, what are sort of the resources that uh, you might tell people to look for? Because I think many people may not even know where to start. Is it, um, you know, and, and of course, this is often a, a disorder that strikes people in their prime, as it were. I mean, it's really, you know, a group that uh, has many, many years and potential productivity that's lost. Mm-hmm. So in any um, given state, there is a single state agency that deals with drug and alcohol uh, use disorders. That's th- they should have a list of treatment facilities. Uh, but in addition, um, we've got a couple of national organizations and federal organizations, SAMHSA, the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration actually publishes a listing of treatment um, facilities in every single state. So you can go online and get that pretty easily. Uh, the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatrists actually publishes a listing of every psychiatrist um, in the country who has added qualifications in um, addiction. So there are some online resources that you can use to find out what's available in your area. You, you, you mentioned uh, during the pandemic, uh, many of the residential programs are closed, and I think many people might have views that those are like the Betty Ford Center or something that, you know, uh, may not be accessible or it's harder for people that have limited means, for example. Are uh, non-residential programs more easily accessible? Are they, is that usually where you start? What should people do, especially now, since the pandemic has probably changed availabilities on many fronts? 
So generally, people would start with an evaluation that helps to determine what level of care, how severe someone's addiction is, and therefore what level of care. And that can really go anywhere from, okay, this is somebody who's um, dabbling in the dangerous range of treatment and probably uh, once a week counseling, if they take it serious, may, may work, or a group, and maybe we'll refer them to AA and NA as well. Uh, all the way up to, let's say it's a pregnant woman who's using and endangering the life of her fetus. So in that case, we often go right to residential and say, okay, we really need to sort of cut off the supply and, and treat this as a very intense and severe illness. Um, but in the middle range is where most people fall, and that is either individual plus group, and it can be anywhere from three or four times a week to what we call an intensive outpatient program, which might keep people in group or individual therapy from eight in the morning till five in the afternoon. Now those have all, as you can imagine, restructured tremendously. They're now exploring. We know how to do individual therapy via telehealth. That's not too hard to figure it out. Although, as you can imagine, you, you, you lose a lot of the body signals and the other ways that people speak with you non-verbally about how they're doing when you when you do therapy uh, via telehealth. But uh, but the area that's really underexplored is um, can you do group therapy via telehealth? Let's say on this screen, we had nine mm -hmm. different people all um, trying to say their piece. And, and in a situation like this, it's harder for the therapist to sort of you know, control the room and allow, you know, so, so much of that is done through body language and who, who you need to draw out and that sort of thing. So, but people are exploring that now. We're getting more and more data on um, using telehealth to deliver group therapy. Yeah, I, I, telehealth uh, hopefully has come to stay, but how we can use it in an optimal fashion, I think, remains to be explored. And and as you mentioned, I think that that human factor is one that's so important on in, in all parts of medicine. I I hope yeah. it doesn't take it over. Uh, perhaps in in closing, people might be trying to seek a um, evaluation for a medical problem or something where the focus is yet. Substance use is recognized, and I'm sure you can do this in a minute or two. Uh, what are some tips you might have to help um, clinicians get patients to at least recognize the issue or or participate? Because obviously, denial is such a key piece of substance use, or or at least uh, lack of engagement. Yeah. So you know that's that's a great question. Um, there is this whole type of interviewing that we call motivational interviewing. And basically, it's a technique where it's totally non-confrontational. That's the last thing you want to do. And it's totally non-judgmental. Um, but you ask people questions. You tell them the facts. This is the fact. Your, your liver functions are higher than, you know, normal. It looks like it's in a dangerous range. You're you know, urine drug screen showed this and say, so, you know, I'm wondering, do you think there's a problem there? And basically through a series of, of questions and then say, well, has anyone else ever told you that was a problem? Are you any, anything that you can think of going on at work or with your wife? And again, in as non-judgmental and open a fashion as possible, try to get people to recognize themselves that maybe there's a problem there and maybe my life could be better if I did something about it. 
You know, I, I think in my conversations, and it's always hard for me to walk in other people's shoes, but so many people will say that they have a different life perspective or a different valuation of life. And it doesn't really matter uh, if they're using it or not, because they, they, you know, the future is something that's very abstract and, you know, bettering yourself or whatnot just doesn't seem important. And I, I've always found uh, patients in that arena very difficult because, you know, they have such a different perspective and uh, one that's sometimes harder for me to, to understand. So um, how would you counsel here? Well, you know, there's usually some lever in almost everybody's life. There is something that almost everyone values. Even they say, I don't really care about the future. Well, maybe how about the present? Uh, what is your wife, girlfriend? How about your kids? Are you spending quality time there? I mean, again, uh, you know, this kind of interviewing does take a little more time and you really do need to get to know a person to figure out what it is that's valuable to them and then gently um, get around to how their substance use may be in some way interfering with something that's of value to them. But you, you need to figure that out first, that's for sure. And often people are highly defended and that's exactly what they'll say. I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I'm fine with my use. It's not, not bothering me or anyone else. So uh, in a situation like that, I think a referral is probably the best course of action and if somebody's really feeling that way, we know if there's problematic substance use, at some point they're gonna get into trouble and they are gonna care. I mean, that's just the way it usually, that's the way it sometimes has to go. We like to, to raise the bottom. We don't like to say people have to hit bottom. That I, I think once people hit bottom, they have, it's so much harder to get up and, and work their way back. But I always think about trying to raise what that bottom would be and get people into treatment as early as possible. I really like that viewpoint. And a question perhaps uh, to conclude, uh, so many people are wondering about the vaccine, uh, when will we have a vaccine and so on. And certainly public health interventions and immunizations have been always most challenging in the kind of patients we're describing. What's yeah. your sort of perspective there in terms of how we can try to help direct immunizations, if indeed we have an efficacious and safe one, uh, to people that have mental health and substance use issues? Yeah, I think, you know, I think by and large, in fact, I just wrote an editorial about, you know, smoking cessation, the big public health effort we've made, which was great. And we've decreased smoking over the last 50 years by a tremendous amount, but those who still smoke are, are actually hardcore smokers and there's much higher nicotine dependence, less casual smoking, higher nicotine dependence. And who are those people? Well, it's the low socioeconomic group, it's people that have substance use disorders, other substance use disorders, and it's the mentally ill. And so my thought after reading that study is that our public health campaigns have not targeted marginalized populations. And we really need to figure out a way. I'm not saying I've got an answer, Paul. I'm just mm -hmm. saying I recognize that this is yeah. a problem. And until we have public health campaigns that really recognize what are social determinants of health and figure out ways to, um, to reach out to and, and make things matter to marginalized populations, they're, they're not going to be successful. 
I agree with you, and I think this remains a you know a significant conundrum, but re requires marshalling of efforts. So we'll we'll certainly see um, if the tremendous resources brought to COVID can help these sorts of patients uh, and people as well. So, uh, Kathleen, I really wanted to thank you for taking the time to share some uh, very valuable information and in your insights and perspectives. I think uh, it, it's, it really helps uh, understand uh, a fuller impact of something like the pandemic on our society here in the United States. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for bringing attention to this because I, I agree, I think it's a really important issue. So I appreciate it. Okay, thank you again, Dr. Brady and Dr. Allwater for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim credit, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, select today's activity, and complete the evaluation. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. 